You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. For our first class, we will look at the kingdom. We will look at a naughty problem and we will look at where God is. For tomorrow, God willing, and we live, we will go on to look at Vashti's disobedience and to Mordecai in the preparation of a bride, Esther, in our first class. We will then look at where the story really begins with the introduction of the enemy of the Jews. We will look at the introduction to sin and to trial and life and how all seemed lost for the Jews. Our third class, we have a special class prepared where we will look at an example of the providence of God in the 21st century. Yes, God performing a miracle in our day and age, young people, for all seemed lost, but with God, all things are possible. On Sunday, God willing, we will look at the deliverance that God gave the Jews through Mordecai and the great development that Esther undergoes, that they work together to be diligent and faithful to save the Jews. And finally, in our exhortation, we will look at the type of Mordecai. We will look at the type of the kingdom and why it's repeated twice in the book of Esther. Why might it be repeated? Well, you may be saying to yourself, well, here we go again to hear the same things. But young people, we might think we know Esther, but do we know Esther? Do we understand the types, the deeper messages and meanings found in this book? For example, do we know why Big Than and Teresh wanted to kill the king? Did we know there was a reason? Do we know Armageddon is spoken about in this book? Do we know that Revelation 17 has import for us here in Esther. Revelation 17, verse 12 says this, The ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings, which have received no kingdom as yet, but receive power as kings one hour with the beast. These have one mind, and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. These shall make war with the lamb, and the lamb shall overcome them. Now that sounds interesting. Do we know how that relates to the book of Esther? Well, we will only touch on the surface of a few of these things this weekend and these fascinating considerations in the book of Esther. But I hope this intrigues you as you continue or maybe start your studies in the book of Esther this year for youth conference. Young people, we would need all week to cover all of the book and the many layers in it. So let's dive in. We may have noticed in reading the book of Esther before that God, his name, his titles, religion in general, prayer, worship, all seem to be missing. Well, why would that be? Well, please come with me to Deuteronomy chapter 31, where we find a a possible answer to this matter.
Deuteronomy 31, we'll start at verse 16. It says, And the Lord said unto Moses, Behold, thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, and this people will rise up, and go a whoring after the gods of the strangers of the land, whither they go to be among them, and will forsake me, and break my covenant which I have made with them. Then my anger shall be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them, and I will hide my face from them, and they shall be devoured, and many evils and troubles shall befall them. So that they will say in that day, Are not these evils come upon us, because our God is not among us? And I will surely hide my face in that day for all the evils which they shall have wrought, in that they are turned unto other gods. Does that sound like the book of Esther to you, young people? It seems this is exactly what's happening in the book of Esther. Yahweh declared here in Deuteronomy 31 that if his people forsook him, he would hide his face from them. Here, this threatening was fulfilled. But, though he was hidden from them, he was working for them. Though the book reveals him as overruling all, his name is hidden. It is there for his people to see. Not for his enemies to see or hear. God has hidden his face. He is not to be found. At least, not on the surface. Because when we read through this book, we undoubtedly see the hand of God in the lives of Mordecai, of Esther, and of the Jews. The power of God is stamped all over this book, young people. In every chapter. I would recommend as you go through your studies this year that you keep track of all the places where it seems to be events just lining up just so in a way that can be seen as providential. This is exactly what happens time and time again in this book. And it can happen time and time again in our lives if we are faithful to him and we look carefully because it may not always be on the surface so why then young people is the name of god extracted from the text why is it not clearly evident on the surface that god is present well we will come to this in a moment but that brings us nicely to ask the question of who ahasuerus is it is not our intention to really look at all at who the king is historically, but it is indeed significant to when this book takes place. It seems the most logical then by some brothers who have gone before and determined that Ahasuerus is most likely to be Darius I Hystaspes, as seen in the story of the Bible, for example, by our brother H.P. Mansfield. And our brother... Jamin and I have also included in the workbook an appendix. So we have a section from this book in the appendix as to the reasons why it indeed is most likely to be this historical king. 
In summary, considering the evidence found within the book of Esther, notably in chapter 2, verse 7, being a key verse, and the ambiguous contrary evidence in favor that the king may be a king that fits other books of the Bible first, ought not to be done, young people. We have to see how first he fits into this book and not force a historical character into this book just because he might fit nicely in other places in Scripture. So Darius is most likely to be the man who has this title of Ahasuerus and potentially some other names or titles in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. In fact, come to Nehemiah chapter 2 with me. We're given this interesting little tidbit of information that just is placed there just to see how well we're paying attention. Nehemiah 2 verse 6 says, And the king said unto me, The queen also sitting by him, For how long shall I journey be, and when wilt thou return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. Ooh, how interesting, young people. Why else would the narrative give us this little bit of information about someone sitting next to the king if it wasn't Esther herself? How interesting. The king so willing to grant the Jews to go back into the land, to rebuild the walls, the temple. How does it seem to be so straightforward for the king to grant these? Or how about Ezra chapter 2, verse 2? I'll read this one for you. It says, which came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Reliah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mizpar, Bigvi, Rehum, Baana, the number of the men of the people of Israel. Is this the Mordecai of Esther? Well, I digress. Consider just this. Of the age of Mordecai, in the book of Esther, in 2 verse 6, we are told that Mordecai was taken away from Jerusalem with Jeconiah in the captivity of 597 B.C., this makes sense then with the king being Darius, Hystaspes, but having Xerxes as the king, for example, it would force Mordecai to be at least 114 years old. That being 597 to 483 BC, which is the third year of the reign of the king or of Xerxes, which we're saying, which is when Esther chapter 1 verses 1 to 3 begins. And this is assuming Mordecai was a baby, a newborn, when he was carried away. He couldn't be any younger than this. And later, at the twelfth year, Mordecai would have to be at least 123 years old as prime minister, if you like, near the end of the book. It would also then necessitate that Esther, in her age, she would be too old to really fit the context of what we are being told here. We do know this is a possibility, as the scripture does show us individuals who have lived several hundred years old, but when we come to this specific day and age, men and women were not living as long as they once were, as far as we can tell. 
Consider for a moment the great power and authority that the king has in the book of Esther. Well, the reason that God is removed from the surface young people is because there is a marvelous parable found in the book under the surface. And by removing God and the worship of him, it makes this parable stand out more. And the principle of providence can be prominently revealed. It's just like our day and age, young people. God is not seen on the surface. But by his mercy, we can see his providence in hand in our lives. Those who read the word of God is alive unto God. And he is alive in their lives. Please come with me to Numbers chapter 23. Numbers 23 is where we have Balaam's parable, where he was told by Balak to curse the enemies, the Jews. But God told him to bless them, which he did. Numbers 23, verse 23, it says, Surely there is no enchantment against Jacob, neither is there any divination against Israel. According to this time, it shall be said of Jacob and of Israel, What hath God wrought? Look at what God has done. What an amazing story we know of how God delivers his people through Mordecai and Esther. The great enemy of the Jews was dealt with, who in some ways was like Balaam, who ended up doing the opposite of what he wanted. So getting back to Esther then, who might the king type in this book? Well, I think it's pretty clear at this point, but let me make it even clearer. This is remarkable since the book of Esther has 167 verses and the king is mentioned 192 times. His kingdom is referred to 26 times, and his name, Ahasuerus, 29 times. Do you think there is an emphasis here? Absolutely and undoubtedly, young people. Whether our brother H.P. Mansfield hits the nail on the head in the story of the Bible, it says this, the story of Esther reveals Ahasuerus as aloof, austere, exercising an authority that is unsurpassed, advancing and deposing his subjects with dictatorial powers. In the typology of the book, he represents the status and authority of God. Although in character, he is but an Eastern monarch. Consider the following points of identification. He is set forth as a great king on the throne of his great white palace. He exercises universal rule and enjoys unrivaled glory. Though his subjects are commanded to attend his banquet, there is no compulsion exercised as to the manner of their partaking. This fits nicely with a verse that we know so well in Daniel chapter 4, verse 17. I'll read it for you. It says, This matter is by the decree of the watchers and the demand by the word of the holy ones to the intent that the living may know that the most high ruleth 
in the kingdom of men and giveth it to whomsoever he will and setteth up over it the basest of men, the most high, the God of the heavens and the earth and all that in them is. Yahweh is indeed in control despite what human on earth is in quotes in power. A key principle as we move forward this weekend in this book and in your studies. You may think, well, that sounds good and all, but why did God in the type promote someone like Haman in chapter 3? Surely, if Ahasuerus held the position in type of God, why would he promote someone like Haman? Well, as pointed out by our brother H.P. Mansfield, He was a type in position and authority, but not in character. But there is another answer. Turn to Revelation chapter 13 with me, please. Where we will again read about the beast. Revelation 13, verse 1. It reads, And I stood upon the sand of the sea, And saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. And the beast, which I saw, (coughs) excuse me, was like unto a shepherd, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power, and his seat, and great authority. And I saw one of his heads, as it were, wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast, and they worshipped the dragon, which gave power unto the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And there was given unto him a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies, and power was given unto him. To continue forty and two months. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. So, young people, we have the Holy Roman Empire given power by the Justinian led Roman Empire. Verse 6 again says, And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, and them that dwell in heaven, it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. You see, God would give power to sin. God would give power to the Holy Roman Empire for a season. There would be a dispensation, a whole time, an era in which sin would reign. That is the day in which we live now. And so sin was given a season, just as it will in this time to come. Through the papacy, young people. But young people, God may seem to be absent. But just 
this, is that we have to look very carefully. We don't have time now, but Yahweh, the name of God, the eternal memorial name for God is embedded in the narrative of this book. In fact, in chapter 1, verse 20 of Esther, in five, chapter 5, verse 4, as well as verse 13 of chapter 5, and in chapter 7, verse 7, Yahweh is embedded in the narrative at key points. It just so happens to be four times. Biblically, four denotes the creative works of God. And I'd say embedding your name acrostically in Scripture is pretty amazing. Very creative, if you ask me. It's interesting to look at these times and the significance, but that is for another time, perhaps, God willing. But it doesn't stop there. You see, in Exodus chapter 3, Moses was shown the verb form of the name of God. Ea, Asher, Ea. I am that I am, or I will be who I will be. And guess what? That's also found in the book of Esther. Only once. In chapter 7 and verse 5. And so we have then five times the name of God in either noun or verb form. Biblically, of course, five is employed as the number of grace or mercy. How fitting. How providential. How inspired. Well, let's dive into chapter 1 before we close, because we have seen how the king holds the position of God, and there is a grand feast that we don't want to miss. The book opens to show how vast the kingdom was, stretching from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. And the king made a feast for his princes and servants for 180 days, or six months. It's a long time. And then in verse 5, he made another feast, which was to all the people in Shushan, the palace, for seven days. As our brother read for us, the language is rich in imagery with colors, tapestries, materials, textures, mosaicisms. Verse 6, look at the, the description of the hangings, pillars, couches, pavement, and marble. Our brother Jamin if you can remember, a few years ago showed us the great connections between chapter 1 here and to the tabernacle and temple with the language. But there is an additional layer. Think for a moment what the tabernacle and temple, what they were teaching. Think broadly of the organization, the worship, the symbols, the people involved, where God was dwelling, in a sense. You see, young people, this time of feasts is descriptive of that great time to come. This is a painting of the picture of the kingdom of heaven, of the kingdom of God. These opening verses are told to give us this great picture, and I believe unquestionably, as they are many in the scriptures that we have. Young people, we need to prepare for that time. We ought to serve God and not ourselves, that he hide not his face from us. 
that he might indeed show his providential hand to us. Just before we get to one of the key lessons for this section, let us deviate and open up a potentially a bit of a a tricky problem. This is found in verse 10 of chapter 1. It says this, On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded me human, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagthar, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven chamberlains that served in the presence of Ahasuerus the king. Some pretty special names, if you ask me. But the problem is with the earlier phrase of the king's heart being merry with wine. Does this mean he was drunk? As many, pretty much every commentator in the world would say. Or maybe perhaps is how it reads the first time you read through it. Or maybe even as a few commentators in the brotherhood seem to suggest. Well, this word, Mary, occurs 559 times in the Hebrew scriptures or Old Testament. The first occurrence is in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 4. When God saw the light, that it was good. That's the same word. The last occurrence is in Malachi chapter 2 verse 7. It says, Ye have wearied the Lord with your words, yet ye say, Wherein have we wearied him? When ye say, Every one that doeth evil is good, same word, in the sight of the Lord, and he delighteth in him, or where is the God of judgment? These are the people who are lost in the time of Malachi. And clearly, there is a contrast between good and evil. Drunkenness is not referred to. Additionally, when you look at all of the occurrences in Esther, not one of them relate to drunkenness of the 18 times this word is used. For example, look at verse 11 in chapter 1, where we find the same word. It says, to bring Vashti the queen before the king with the crown royal, to show the people and the princes her beauty, for she was fair, same word, to look on. Or how about verse 19? If it please the king, let there go a royal commandment from him, and let it be written among the Jews of the Persians and the Medes, that it be not altered, that Vashti come no more before King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal estate unto another that is better, same word, than she. You see, young people, if the king was truly drunk, then do you think he would really do what he did in verse 14? Look at what it says. And next unto him was Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Miraz, Mersina, Mermukin, the seven princes of Persia and Media, which saw the king's face and which sat the first in the kingdom. What shall we do unto the queen Vashti according to law? Because she hath not performed the commandment of the king Ahasuerus by the chamberlains. The king asked advice of his wise men because of the tricky situation that he was in. Do you really think he would ask for advice in a state of intoxication? I don't think so. Historically, 
kings oftentimes did not drink alcohol at all. They were so afraid of someone trying to overthrow them, to assassinate them. Consider the example we have in Daniel chapter 5 with Belshazzar, who drank wine before everyone. And by the end of the chapter, the kingdom was overthrown by the Medians. And so in the recent Medo-Persian history, they have just exactly what they didn't want to happen to themselves. In the end, it's fairly clear when someone would be drunk with wine in the biblical record, which in this case, we find that it does not point in that direction. When we even look into the typology of the book of Esther and what is seen here, especially into why the king was calling the queen to come before the people and princes, we know he had his wits about him. We will look more into this tomorrow. The lesson for us then in seeing the, is seeing the providence of God. Come to Romans chapter 8, please. A well-known verse. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. We probably know it off by heart. Paul says, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. They worked together for good in the days of Mordecai and Esther because they were called and some also loved him. All things work together for good. Our brother Colin Attridge, in the fruit of the spirit, as shown on the screen, says, keep in mind that the Bible says all things work together for good in the life of a believer. Not that all things are good. In other words, young people, our lives may have times of difficult trial. May have times when all seems lost. When all is lost. But in the end... All things work together for good. And that's the key. Let us take that principle and keep it in our hearts this weekend and as we go forward in our journeys to the kingdom. Well, that might be well and all, Jacob, but Vashai disobeys him or God in the time of the kingdom. That makes no sense at all. Well, that young people, we will look at tomorrow, God willing. And who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? And the first section gave us a vision and typed the things of the kingdom.
we briefly looked at where God is in the narrative. We looked at the historical king, and we tackled the issue of the king's heart being merry with wine and what that meant. And we concluded with a few potent lessons for us. Today, in our first class, God willing, we will look at Vashti's disobedience and to Mordecai and the preparation of a bride, Esther, in our first class. We will then look at where the story really begins with the introduction of the enemy of the Jews. We will look at the introduction to sin and to trial in life and how all seemed lost for the Jews. For our third class, we have a special class prepared where we will look at an example of the providence of God seen in the 21st century. Yes, God performing a miracle in our day and age. For all seemed lost, but with God, all things are possible. Tomorrow, God willing, we will look at the great deliverance that God gave the Jews through Mordecai and the great development of Esther, that they worked diligently to be faithful to save the Jews. And in our exhortation to conclude our studies together, we will look at the type of Mordecai. We will look at why the kingdom, the type of the kingdom, is repeated in chapter 1, as well as at the end of the book of Esther. Why might it be repeated? Well, we asked a few questions on Friday, whether we really understood the book of Esther or not. Like, do we know why Big Than and Teresh wanted to kill the king? Do we know Armageddon is spoken about in the book of Esther? And do we know that Revelation 17 has import for us here in Esther? It's some of these things we'd like to consider in our studies going forward and for the youth conference, as our brother Darren spoke about, God willing, and we live and do this or that. And even if you don't enjoy the studies today, I still recommend coming. For those who were here last night, you may remember how we considered the promotion of Haman by someone who holds a position of or types God. We saw in Revelation 13 how sin was allowed to reign for a period of time, as it is in our day and age. Another similar issue is determining how it was even possible that the wife of the king, of God, was allowed to disobey him. If this were really the kingdom typed in the first chapter, then what are we being told here with the disobedience of Vashti? Well, two points follow, young people. The first is that when we look at the book of Esther, its timeline, its parable, it's not in order. When we can't get caught up in this, so much so, young people, that the event of Vashti being disobedient isn't even in itself what happens during the kingdom age. It's telling us of some important details regarding the kingdom age and not what will happen during that time. And secondly, we must consider the deeper meaning, the type, when it comes to this section of scripture, as it is not apparent in the immediate context of this section as to the meaning 
behind it. So let's look then at the first section we find here in Esther chapter 1. As we had read verse 10, on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commended me human, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven chamberlains that served in the presence of Ahasuerus the king, to bring Vashti the queen before the king with the crown royal, to show the people and the princes her beauty, for she was fair to look on. So what was the reason the king wanted the queen to come before all the people at the feast? Was it to show off her beauty and pride? What do you think? How did you read verse 11? Let me read verse 11 again, putting the emphasis where it ought to be. To bring Vashti the queen before the king with the crown royal to show the people and the prince is her beauty, for she was fair to look on. Well, that is a very specific request of the king, that the queen comes in with the crown royal. Well, Vashti means in the Hebrew, beautiful. And it emphasizes this three times in this verse, including her name. Vashti meaning beautiful, her beauty, and she was fair to look on. Undoubtedly, this was a trait of Queen Vashti, but what young people was the reason for her to come before the people? Again, she was to come with the crown royal. Where did the crown come from? With what responsibilities did the crown come with, in a sense? A crown was a reflection of what? Well, the crown, of course, came from the king. The crown was to reflect the very king himself in character and power of his greatness, of his glory, of his honor, that of God's, as we saw last night. The key verse is found in Proverbs chapter 12. Please come there with me. Proverbs chapter 12 says it all, young people. We'll read from verse 4 of Proverbs 12. It says, A virtuous woman is a crown to her husband, but she that maketh ashamed is as rottenness in his bones. You see, a virtuous, noble, honorable wife is one who reflects the very character of her husband. You see, the woman was to be a help meet to man or to her husband which holds the idea of a mirror or a reflection. And that is exactly what a faithful wife does. She reflects the faithful character and attributes of her husband. The man should reflect, of course, the character of Christ and Christ of God. Well, hold your hand in Esther and come with me to another verse found in Psalm 45, please. Psalm 45 is one of the Psalms of Shoshanim related to the word Shushan, as you will notice below the chapter heading. Psalm 45 and verse 11 says this, So shall the king greatly desire thy beauty. And this is exactly what King Ahasuerus desired, as emphasized clearly in verse 11 of Esther chapter 1. 
But what comes next in the psalm? Verse 11, for he is thy Lord, and worship thou him. This was how Vashti was to respond. But how did Vashti respond? Well, flip back to Esther. It says in verse 12, But the queen Vashti refused to come at the king's commandment by his chamberlains. Therefore was the king very wroth, and his anger burned in him. The word refused is a word also used of Pharaoh refusing to let the children of Israel go in Exodus chapter 7. It's used of Pharaoh who refused to humble his heart before God in Exodus 10. It's used of Edom who wouldn't let Israel cross their land in Numbers 20. It's used of God who wouldn't allow Balaam to go with Balak in Numbers 22. And it's used of the children of Israel refusing to follow the voice of Samuel in 1 Samuel 8. This is all in the handout that you got at registration for you if you'd like to Bible mark it at some point. And make sure you do have a handout. If not, please make sure you have one. (laughs) We can make copies with the, the copier in the back because we will be using that this class and in the next few. Refuse, in other words here, young people, it wasn't going to happen, period. There, there was no way. Vashai was snubbing, was disobeying, was defying, was challenging, was flouting the very command of the king, of God. Look at the attitude of young people in verse 9. We didn't examine this, but the word the is not in the original Verse 9 reads, And Vashti the queen made a feast for women in the royal house which belonged to King Ahasuerus, or royal house of King Ahasuerus. You see, what is being said, young people? It wasn't just a feast. It was a feast of independence. It was a feast in the face of men. It was a feast to say that men aren't needed. That we can do everything a man can do. We don't need men. And so we will just have a feast to ourselves. Does that not sound like the disgusting attitude in the world in which we live now? Let it not creep in unawares, young people, to your families, to your CYCs, to your ecclesias, because God has appointed us to the earth. God has appointed us with specific roles as men and women for those baptized into Christ as brothers and sisters in Christ. And you know, our decisions, our words, our actions can have great impact on others. The wise men of Persia realized this as it says there in verse 17, for this deed of the queen shall come abroad unto all women so that they shall despise their husbands in their eyes. When it shall be reported, the king Ahasuerus commanded Vashti the queen to be brought in before him, but she came not. Likewise shall all, shall the ladies of Persia and Media say this day 
unto all the king's princes, which have heard of the deed of the queen. Thus shall there arise too much contempt and wrath. They knew it wouldn't just be Vashti, but everyone who saw her example. I believe this is where 1 Timothy chapter 5 comes into play. I'll read it for you. It says, Them that sin rebuke before all, that others also may fear. This would be a sin that all knew and could be affected by. And hence, in this particular case, had to be rebuked before all. Well, getting back to Esther in verse 9, you know what it says in the very same verse? It makes me want to smile in sadness. Yes, a bit of an oxymoron. Verse 9 says, Also Vashti, the queen, made a feast for women in the royal house which belonged to King Ahasuerus. Or, by the royal house of King Ahasuerus. As the word belonged isn't there, but it is implied. Wait, wait. So what we're being told is that the queen was being defiant to the king with what she had been given by the king. Do you see the irony, young people? It's pitiful, isn't it? Well, turn to 1 Peter chapter 3 with me. We aren't going to delve deeply into the relationships and principles that are at play with husbands and wives, with brothers and sisters, with men and women, but let's just take a peek at what we are being told here. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear, whose adorning let it not be that outward adorning of plaiting the hair and of wearing of gold or of putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. For after this manner, in the old time, the holy women also, who trusted in God, adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands, even as Sarah called Abraham, sorry, obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are, as long as ye do well, and are not afraid with any amazement. Well, wait a second. Where did we just read of similar language. Well, Psalm 45, of course. Remember it said, So shall the king greatly desire thy beauty, for he is thy Lord, and worship thou him. We have the example of Sarah, who called Abraham her Lord. And as the psalm says, for a queen to call her husband the king. These are the faithful examples of women, of sisters, of wives that we have in Scripture. Sarah is a marvelous example of submission, of respect, shown to her husband, and of faithfulness. Speaking 
of faithfulness and Vashti, what might Vashti in the parable or in the type represent? Well, how about this verse? You'll want to put this in your margin back in Esther. Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 to 33. It says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was an husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. God was a husband unto who? The people of Israel, young people. And so we have Vashti as a type of natural Israel. Just as many of the prophets of Israel and Judah called natural Israel to repentance. They were many a times rejected and refused. Just as Vashti refused the call of the king, of God, through the chamberlains or prophets of Israel. Exodus 16 verse 28 says, And the Lord said unto Moses, How long refuse ye to keep my commandments and my laws? That word refuse, young people, is the same word for refuse in Esther in verse 11. So too, young people, we need to obey the king. We need to obey God. We need to have obedience in our lives. This may mean we need to stop doing something in our lives as we are disobeying our father. It may mean we need to stop sinning in one way or another. It may mean we need to stop wasting our time. This may mean we need to continue to do more of something and prioritize it in our lives as it is commanded of God, like praying, preaching, reading the scriptures. It may mean we need to start doing something, like attending lecture, Bible class, CYC, to the best of our ability, or that we start our day with prayer, or end our day with prayer. The potential development is endless. It's infinite, young people. We don't need to be perfect but we need to strive for perfection for our God in heaven is perfect. We need to strive for development in our lives and in our relationship with our heavenly father for this is the only way to begin our preparations for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. What I need to stop in my life I ought to stop watching so many useless videos on YouTube about useless things that produce useless outcomes and yields a description of the time that I've been blessed with as utterly useless. What I ought to continue? The Bible Readings Project 
with my wife that we started at the beginning of this year, finding a child-rearing principle in every chapter of the Bible. And I ought to start reading a work of the truth every month that I stay dedicated to the things of the word that I may know how to live by the word. These are my three goals. What are yours? Well, you don't have to share them. You can keep them private to yourself or you can share them with your friends that they will help keep you accountable. Or you can come up after the class and share them with me that I can also help to keep you accountable as I am now accountable to you all. Well, young people, we must pass over much of the next section as we are limited with our time. But we know what happens next, don't we? Vashti is deposed of, just as God deposed of natural Israel. A new queen would be sought. A new bride for God would be sought out of the tree of Israel. A new branch would be grafted in. That, young people, is ourselves. Those who are faithful believers and are baptized into the hope of Israel. And this individual would in type represent the multitudinous bride of Christ. Well, let us be introduced to this individual and the one who would raise her in the ways that are right, that she departs not from them. Esther chapter 2, verse 5. Now in Shushan the palace, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captivity, which had been carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. And he brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother, and the maid was fair and beautiful, whom Mordecai, when her father and mother were dead, took for his own daughter. Mordecai, his name means a little man, who was a Benjamite, which means son of my right hand, who had been carried away from Jerusalem with Jeconiah, or Jehoiakim, or Chin, is sometimes pronounced, or Coniah, all the same individual. And he is also known to, of course, bring up Hadassah, which means myrtle, or Esther, which means star, for she had lost her parents, likely in the captivity of Babylon, when they came down in three major waves against the southern kingdom of Judah. And what is noted of Esther? She was fair and beautiful. But what else is she noted for? What gets the attention of others? Just her beauty? Verse 8. So it came to pass when the king's commandment and his decree was heard, and when many maidens were gathered together into Shushan the palace to the custody of Hegai, that Esther was brought also unto the king's house to the custody of Hegai, keeper of the women. And the maiden pleased him, and she obtained kindness of him, and he speedily gave her her things for purification with such things as belonged to her. 
and seven maidens, which were meet to be given her out of the king's house. And he preferred her and her maids unto the best place of the house of the women. Haggai, who was a eunuch, saw Esther as someone who was special. How so? Was it because she was beautiful? No. All the women gathered were beautiful. Esther obtained kindness and preference to the best place because of her character. Remember 1 Peter chapter 3? She held Mordecai who brought her up as the hidden man of her heart. It said, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear, whose adorning let it not be that outward adorning of plating the hair and of wearing of gold or of putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart and that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. I have no doubt that it was her character that allowed her to stand out among all the beautiful virgins gathered in Persia. Perhaps even it was some of these specific characteristics of a chaste way of living, not focusing on the outward appearance, but of a quiet and teachable spirit that she had. And what else, young people? Verse 10, Esther had not showed her people nor her kindred, for Mordecai had charged her that she should not show it. One word, obedience. Again, her character of obedience was shining forth to all who met her and spent any time with her. It's of no wonder that the contrast was great between Esther and Vashti, both with exceptional beauty, but only one with exceptional character. And we know the children of Israel at times hearkened not. They obeyed not the commands of God. For example, in Deuteronomy 8 and verse 20, which says on the screen, as the nations which the Lord destroyed before your face, so shall ye perish, because ye would not be obedient unto the voice of the Lord your God. Or in Deuteronomy 11 verse 28, and a curse, if you will not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside out of the way which I command you this day, to go after other gods which ye have not known. Or finally, in Joshua 5, verse 6, For the children of Israel walked forty years in the wilderness, till all the people that were men of war, which came out of Egypt, were consumed, because they obeyed not the voice of the Lord, unto whom the Lord sware that he would not show them the land which the Lord sware unto their fathers, that he would give us a land that floweth with milk and honey. But there is still a hope. There is still a remnant that obeyed the voice of God. Compare Abraham in Genesis 22, verse 18. And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. Or in Genesis 28, verse 7, with Jacob, and that Jacob obeyed his father and his mother and was gone to Padan Aram. Or to all the children of Israel, a blessing would come with obedience. In Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 27, a blessing 
if ye obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you this day. Now let's read about the preparation of Esther for her time to go before the king. Reading from verse 12. Now when every maid's turn was come to go in to King Ahasuerus, after that she had been twelve months according to the manner of the women. For so were the days of their purifications accomplished, to wit, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with sweet odors and with other things for the purifying of the women. They spent an entire year in preparation to come before the king. Imagine how radiant these women would have been after such preparations. So each woman spent six months with oil of myrrh and six months with sweet odors. Now myrrh was an ingredient of the holy anointing oil, the word of God. It was used to anoint many of the parts of the tabernacle and Aaron and his sons, which points to the life of a priest, the teachers of the word of God. In Song of Solomon 1 verse 3, it says, it also points to the character of the individual. And it says there, because of the savor of thy good ointments, thy name is as ointment poured forth. Therefore, do the virgins love thee. Thy name is as ointment poured forth. It has a sweet odor about it. There is a sweetness about the character of the individual. There is an outworking of this ointment. It's no good if you rub in this ointment and there is not any effect. There isn't any effect on the individual. It was part of Christ's life from the beginning to the end. Matthew 2 verse 11, the wise men brought it to Jesus. And in John 19 verse 39, Nicodemus wound Jesus' body with linen clothes with spices of a mixture of myrrh and aloes. So the emphasis then is the word of God being outworked in our lives, our lives of dedication by the word. It points to a dedication to the word in marriage, young people. The joining of two together in Psalm 45 And then, after they had six months with myrrh, they had six months with sweet odors. Sweet odors were also a part of the holy anointing oil. It was daily burnt in the tabernacle. In Psalm 141, verse 2, it's clearly a symbol for prayer. It says, let my prayer be set forth before thee as incense, and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. That incense of sweet odors was a representation or symbol for prayer. Now, do you think they used the sweet odors and myrrh on the first and last day of the six months to say, I prepared for six months? Of course not. It would have been something that they used every single day. Young people, we need to be dedicated every single day, both to the reading, study, and application of the Word of God. And we need to be dedicated to God in prayer every single day. 
And so we leave off our story here with the key lessons of obedience, of dedication to the Word of God and its application, and of dedication to God in prayer. Next class, we will see Esther shine forth, and then we will see where it all really begins in the beginning. Because we haven't yet been introduced to the great antagonist of the book, the enemy of the Jews. Well, that, young people, is our subject for our next class, God willing, if we live and do this or that. The Enemy of the Jews. Well, welcome back, everyone. We pick up the narrative then, having Esther just gone through a year of preparations, right? With six months in oil of myrrh and six months with sweet odors to come before the king. And we saw last class, these were symbols for dedication to God through his word and dedication to God through prayer. We looked at the key idea of obedience and its importance in our day and age as we prepare for Christ's return. This afternoon, we come to a time, that great time of anticipation, when for a whole year, you have been waiting and preparing to go before the king of Persia, the king of the earth. As it says in verse 13, each maiden was allowed to take whatever she desired to have with her to go to the king's house. Did you note what Esther took? Verse 14, in the evening she went, and on the morrow she returned into the second house of the women to the custody of Sheashgaz, the king's chamberlain, which kept the concubines. She came in unto the king no more, except the king delighted in her, and that she was called by name. Now when the turn of Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her for his daughter, was come to go in unto the king, she required nothing but what Haggai, the king's chamberlain, the keeper of the women, appointed. And Esther obtained favor in the sight of all them that looked upon her. Esther required nothing except with what she had prepared with, a mind engaged with what God was speaking to her, and a mind that communicates with her father, her true father, Yahweh, the true father of strength. You can only imagine what all the other ladies required to take from the house of the women, such as all the accessories one could have, but this maiden, this Hadassah, required none of it. This young people ought to be the way we are in our lives. We ought to focus and require only what God gives to us in his word 
and communicate back to our Father in thankfulness without all the baggage or accessories that we could bring before God. You see, the problem with the first queen, as our brother Jamin a few years ago nicely put, said that there was an issue with this queen regarding her character. And it would only be a change in character that would result in a successful applicant to be queen of the world in a time of Persian domination. You might think, well, look at verse 15. It says, all that looked upon her. It was all about her beauty. But that's not so young people. How is character discerned? By our sight. The way one carries themselves. The way they look at others. The way they smile, perhaps. You see, character is also discerned on what we see or hear. So keeping to the strict seeing of someone else and what they look like is only the story of what we see in someone physically. But we ought to look to what God can see in us by way of character. For nothing is hid from him. Potentially this echoes to the time when we will be judged, when we will be divided to the left or to the right. To the king's house or to the second house. As goats or sheep. What are we going to take with us, young people? I can assure you there is nothing you can wear or take with you that's going to help. It's the preparation right now, day after day, in the reading, in the study of God's word, and in our communication back to God in prayer, that we may develop a strong relationship with him. So Esther goes in unto the king, verse 16. So Esther was taken unto King Ahasuerus into his royal, into his house royal in the tenth month, which is the month Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. And the king loved Esther above all the women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown upon her head, and he made her queen instead of Vashti. Esther obtained grace and favor in the sight of the king more than all the other maidens. Was this because she was beautiful? No. Undoubtedly, she was beautiful, but so were the many women in the house of the women. This Esther was special. Special because of her character. Special because of who she had become. Special, but not because of her beauty. Clearly, there was a great contrast between Esther and Vashti. Both of them were physically beautiful, but only one had a beauty of heart and mind. Young people, who are we trying to be? Because we can really only have an effect on one of these. We can't control our genes, but we can control our minds. We can control what we do with our minds, what we choose to think about, what we do with our time. 
To make the contrast greater between Vashti and Esther, the very first thing the king does is fulfill that of Proverbs 12, verse 4, that we looked at. A virtuous woman is a crown to her husband, but she that maketh ashamed is as rottenness in his bones. Esther is crowned, young people, because she is a reflection and a crown to her husband. But the contrast doesn't end there. It then goes on to specifically mention that Esther is made queen instead of Vashti, which is like the rest of the verse in Proverbs, speaking potentially about Vashti. A great wedding feast was had, and what was told of the character of Esther, verse 20, that she obeyed Mordecai, even though she now had power over him. Now that tells us of the character of Esther, not one to act over others just because of the position she now had. She still showed great respect and sobriety to Mordecai who had raised her. And then young people, the narrative completely changes. Verse 21, in those days while Mordecai sat in the king's gate, Two of the king's chamberlains, Big Thin and Teresh, of those which kept the door, were wroth and sought to lay hand on the king Ahasuerus. And the thing was known to Mordecai, who told it unto Esther the queen. And Esther certified the king thereof in Mordecai's name. And when inquisition was made of the matter, it was found out. Therefore, they were both hanged on a tree. And it was written in the book of the Chronicles before the king. Big Than according to Jesenius, means gift of fortune. And Teresh means severe or austere. Google says fortune means, can mean chance or luck as an external arbitrary force affecting human affairs. What might the gift be speaking about causing this force to act in human affairs against the severe or austere. Well, that is a discussion for another time. I would recommend examining this in your studies in the book of Esther. Well, we come to chapter 3 then, where the story of Esther really seems to begin. Verse 1, again, says, After these things did King Ahasuerus promote Haman, the son of Hamadath of the Agagite, and advanced him, and set his seat above all the princes that were with him. We are introduced to this Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. Jesenius says that Haman means magnificent or illustrious. Hamadatha literally means father of Haman. And the Agagites, according to Smith's Bible Dictionary, relates, of course, the king of the Amalekites called Agag, with the Agagites as seen in 1 Samuel 15, when Saul spared king Agag of the Amalekites. When did Samuel, or what, sorry, did Samuel think of this action of Saul? Well, in verse 33, it says that he hewed Agag in pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. A gory scene, but one in which reflects the kind of people that Israel was facing and what ought to be done to them. For the children of Israel had a long history with this 
nation located near their land. You see, this people, this man, Haman, represents in part the flesh in all its glory and wickedness. Sin, iniquity, transgression, and how it is manifested in our lives. And what ought to be done to Haman in each of our lives, young people? He must be hewed in pieces, completely destroyed, wiped off the face of the earth. Sin in our lives must not be given any chances, but smothered out that it is given zero opportunity to raise its ugly head. As our brother H.B. Mansfield says about Haman, I quote, He represented the seed of the serpent in its various manifestations. He was granted power for a time. He was known as the Jew's enemy. He sought to destroy Mordecai. He was forced to honor Mordecai. He was committed to attend the banquet of wine and was afterwards hung on his own gallows. His ten sons were slain after him. Haman thus typifies the flesh in several manifestations. He represented the seed of the serpent, which sought to put Christ to death, but in so doing encompassed its own destruction. He also represented the flesh yet to be politically manifested in Gog, who will be destroyed after causing the time of Jacob's trouble. He also foreshadowed the flesh ecclesiastically, manifested in the man of sin, who is to be destroyed at Christ's coming together with his ten sons. End quote. Hence, young people, a fascinating character to look at. Well, in verse 2, after Mordecai refused to bow, it set this man off in a frenzy of anger to attempt to kill an entire nation of people. In another word, genocide of Israel. This man's pride was like no other. When we quickly survey the Psalms and Proverbs, there are many helpful verses of which we will quickly look at a few. I've got them up on the screen for you. Those who have pride are described as proud and they will persecute the poor. They will not seek God. There will be sin, cursing, and lying from their lips. They stand out. It's evil. Shame follows. Contention is a result. They have a mouth of foolishness. Destruction follows. And they will be brought low. So what is the result of Haman's pride here in Esther? Verse 5, it says, And when Haman saw that Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence, then was Haman full of wrath. And he thought scorn to lay hands on Mordecai, Mordecai alone. For they had showed him the people of Mordecai. Wherefore, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews that were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, even the people of Mordecai. In the first month, that is the month Nisan, in the twelfth year of the king Ahasuerus, they cast Pur, that is the lot, before Haman from day to day and from month to month to the twelfth month, that is the month Adar. So what does verse 7 mean? Does it mean he cast lots every day to determine a day 
to wipe out the people of Mordecai? Well, it means, young people, that he cast lots in order to choose the month and the day specifically in which to kill the children of Israel. So as an example, the casting of lots was put up to chance, just like these dice. You roll these dice, right? So Haman would have wanted to choose the month and the day. Okay? All right, the 12th month. Let's choose a day now. The 13th day, right? So that could just an example of what the casting of lots would be like, like rolling the dice. And so Haman was willing to pay 10,000 talents of silver to the hands of those that have the charge of the business to bring into the king's treasuries. Come with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, please. This is where this number shows up again, giving us a clue as to what it might represent. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We will start at verse 9. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 9. For I think that God hath set forth us, the apostles, last, as it were appointed to death. For we are made a spectacle unto the world, and to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake. But ye are wise in Christ. We are weak, but ye are strong. Ye are honorable, but we are despised. Even unto this present hour, we both hunger and thirst, and are naked, and are buffeted, and have no certain dwelling place. And labor, working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we suffer it. Being defamed, we entreat. We are made as the filth of the world and are the offscouring of all things unto this day. I write not these things to shame you, but as my beloved sons I warn you. For though ye have ten thousand instructors in Christ, yet have ye not many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. Wherefore, I beseech you, be ye followers of me. Ten thousand instructors in Christ. And so we have the symbol or representation of the saints here in Esther. And sadly, they were being sold for their very lives. Look at how Haman describes the Jews back in Esther. Verse 8, he calls them a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed. Their laws are different and they don't keep your laws, my king. And hence it's in your best interest to rid them of the land, in the land of these people. And so in verse 10, Haman is given the ring from the hand of the king in order to write this letter to all the kingdom and to sign it with the king's power and authority. Clearly Haman was overcome with greed in his mind. 
And he was giving incentive for others to kill the Jews. As it says at the end of verse 13, that others were to take a spoil of them for a prey. Young people, when was the day the Jews were to be wiped off the face of the earth? Well, as we saw, Haman was to choose a month and a day. And he did this in the first month of Nisan. Well, it just so happens to be the month they were to face this great trial was to be at the end of the year, the 12th month of Adar. You can just picture the angel of God causing the dice, as it were, or manner of casting lots to be put to luck or chance, Haman thought. But who created this law in our universe? God did. In the providence of God, we see how the Jews were given essentially the maximum amount of time to respond and prepare for this great trial they would all face. Clearly, it was all in the hands of God. And so it was specifically put at the end of the year, when the children of Israel had the pulling of flax, had the citrus fruit harvest, and they had the latter rains. And this month is when Purim would be instituted. And what day? Why, of course, the day of rebellion in symbol, the day of the enemies of the Jews, when the enemy would seek to kill its prey the 13th day. Well, if Haman only knew what Scripture had to say with regard to cursing the Jews. Please come with me back to Genesis chapter 12, where we have the blessings given to Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 says, Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken unto him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was seventy and five years old, when he departed out of Haran. So those who bless Israel would be blessed, and those who curse Israel would be cursed. This outworks itself today and can be seen as a physical law of the earth. And we know there will be a time to come shortly in our lives where we will see a great cursing against Israel. But that will lead to the complete destruction of the enemy of the Jews, who was in old time, will be led by Agag, by Haman. But Haman had no idea who he was dealing with. But neither did most in Persia. And what was the result? Verse 15. At the end, the city of Shushan was perplexed. And what does Haman do for the first time in verse 10 is described as the Jews' enemy? 
It says the post went out, being hastened by the king's commandments, and the decree was given in Shushan the palace, and the king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city, Shushan, was perplexed. He sat down to eat and drink, thinking that it was by the king he could trust and have power to do what he desired. But little did he know this was so far from the truth. It was quite the opposite, really. But to the Jews, young people, all seemed lost. All was determined to end. They had only 11 months left to live. What would you do if you only had 11 months left to live? Think of the disparity that they were feeling and were in young people this great trial they were in. This seemed like an impossible mountain to climb. It seemed as though God hid his face from them. It seemed that they were all doomed. All is lost. Goodbye. It appeared that this was the time to give up. It seemed as though this was the time when they had no more time. Young people, what do we do when we are under trial, great or small? Under trial that is intense, painful, hurtful physically, emotionally, spiritually. What is your attitude? What do you do? What do you think? What do you say? Who do you speak to? What happens next? Well, on your handout, which hopefully you all have, I printed 10 more copies at the back if you don't, we have a small section where we can do a mini workshop together. We have the questions, which are also up on the screen. What do we think, say, do in trial, and who do we put our trust in during trial? Well, we'll take the next 10 or so minutes to fill some of the verses and ideas we find on trial. But in order to make this simpler and to narrow our search, we are going to look at only the epistle when the Jews were undergoing trial as they were scattered abroad among the nations before them. The epistle of James. So come to the book of James and write only verses found in the book of James that relate to each of the questions. Please turn there with me. Scan over the chapters and verses and try to come up with a verse or list of verses and the key idea of the verse beside each of the questions. These can also be related principles to the question, such as not only what we say, but how we say what we say. You can add to your list, and if I've missed something, come up to me after and share what you found, please, because I'd love to add to my list as well. So the first question is what do we think in trial? And this one comes up nice and early in the book of James, chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, right? We count it all joy, having a positive mindset towards trial, knowing that despite the pain, despite what we are facing, it will produce fruit, and that glory will be brought to God in doing so. What do we say in trial? We must be slow to speak, 
We must not kindle fires. We must bridle our tongues. Blessing ought to be the only thing from our mouths. We need to ask for the right things. Well, how about what we do in trial? We, are, we must be dedicated to prayer. We have to have endurance. We must be swift to hear, be slow to wrath, be doers of the word, focusing on others, have an alive faith in God by doing. We must have works with meekness and wisdom. And finally, who do we put our trust in when in trial? Well, of course, God. And in that which is eternal. So there are all the questions. If you need to write any of them down. Some of the verses. Well, what did we learn in the earlier sections of Esther about trial? We need to obey our Heavenly Father. We need to read his word every day. We need to pray to our God, our Father of strength, every day. We ought to take the example of the examples of Mordecai and Esther who diligently prepared for her turn to come before the king. She had no idea what would happen next to her. She wasn't sure if it was meant to be. She wasn't sure that she was doing the right thing. She wasn't sure. She wasn't sure. But she followed after the example and commands of Mordecai and obeyed that she might be counted faithful. That she might indeed prepare in the way she could to come before the king of all the earth. She took her trust in the ecclesia that she might be helped to that goal for the honor and glory of God. This, young people, is how we ought to move through trial no matter the difficult circumstances that we face in our lives. Well, young people, all seemed lost. And in our next class, we will see the providence of God. We will see a miracle performed, but not in the days of Esther, in our day. So we can see how God's hand still works in this earth, despite how insignificant our lives may feel at times. We will see how God helped in trial. We will see death, but we will see life again. And who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Young people, good afternoon. We know these words were spoken by Mordecai to Esther. This is how we have ended every class. Why? 
Because this is the key phrase that has and shows the great realization of the providence of God. This phrase can be understood in all of our lives, not as coming to the kingdom as Esther, but in whatever circumstance we may be in. That it might just be for our sakes or for someone else that you're in the situation you are in or the actions or words that you have taken or spoken. You see, young people, many of the circumstances or trials in our personal lives don't necessarily have anything to do with us in terms of the reason for it. It could be for someone else entirely. And so we look to our brother Robert Roberts, who says this in the ways of providence. I quote, that there should be such a thing as providence is reasonable in view of the fact that God has purpose among the nations of the earth as revealed in prophecy of political matters, this purpose would never be realized were the endless impulses of the human action not subject to vigilant divine supervision carefully guiding events at the turning points. End quote. We left off with the Jews in a state of utter hopelessness. But you see the build-up is to show one of the great principles in the book of Esther. It's that of providence, young people. And I do believe I have experienced something along a similar vein. Something exceptional. That I would like to share with you all this afternoon. Because all seemed lost. But deliverance did indeed arise from another place. But you see, providence doesn't necessarily mean good or a good thing will happen. It means that the end result will produce something that is good, that is better, even despite the immediate result that might seem like the opposite. Or even if it seems like the complete opposite of what the short-term results that we will look at this afternoon. You see, many events don't turn out like the one I will share this afternoon, but they can, and they have. Now this topic is different from one that I would normally give, but due to the circumstances, I believe I'm obliged to share it with you all. I have no idea why this happened to me, but clearly I needed shaking. I've never shared so much personally during a talk, but please remember, this is not to draw attention to myself, but to give all the glory to God and to show his amazing hand in our lives. And because of the nature and amount of personal information, I ask that no recording screenshots or pictures be taken. There are a lot of eyes and a lot of me's, but really this talk has nothing to do with I mean, incidentally, it does, of course. But tonight is all about the hand of God working in our lives. Please come with me to a verse found in Mark chapter 7. A few verses, in fact. Mark 7, we'll we'll begin at verse 31. It says, And again, departing from the coasts of Tyre and Sidon, he came unto the Sea of Galilee, through the midst of the coasts of Decapolis. And they bring unto him one that was deaf and had an impediment in his speech. And they beseech him 
to put his hand upon him. And he took him aside from the multitude and put his fingers in his ears and he spit and touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said unto him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And straightway his ears were opened and the string of his tongue was loosed. And he spake plain. And he charged them that they should tell no man. But the more he charged them, so much the more a great deal. They published it and were beyond measure astonished, saying, He hath done all things well. He maketh both the deaf to hear and the dumb to speak. Young people, I haven't been told to tell no man. And so I will preach from the mountaintops how God has performed a miracle. This class is really a brief snapshot of what happened and the events surrounding what occurred on that perilous day in 2019. I have given this talk before, and so I do apologize if you have already heard it. Please bear with me. Put yourself in the shoes and feelings of this individual. You feel a cold wave wash over your body. You think you are sleeping. Are you dreaming? But you look up into the vast sky at night and realize there is nothing in it but pitch black darkness so vast that that's all you know. Time has no meaning. It doesn't exist anymore. You do not know if you are breathing or if your heart is pumping. As a matter of fact, they have both stopped. You've just died. But of course, you don't realize this because there is no thought in death unless you are revived or resurrected, when you suddenly come to realize what has just happened of recent, or you are witnessing the events. On August 31st, 2019, there was a distinct and peculiar noise that we hear about once a month in Caledonia where we live. siren you ask? It's the Caledonia Fire Station siren to alert the completely volunteer run group of firefighters that they are needed Im imminently. Why were they needed so urgently this day? Well, let's let the news anchor tell you. We begin in Haldeman County, where two men are in hospital with life-threatening injuries following two separate collisions on the same day. Police putting out a warning to the public to drive with extra caution during the long weekend. CTV's Heather Centerin is back from Haldeman County and joins us with more on this. Heather, this is always a busy time of year on the roads. It is, Leanne, and police admit that usually means roads are jam-packed with travelers, but this weekend proved to be extremely dangerous with two crashes hours apart. The drive looks clear now, but that wasn't the case on Saturday. The roads in Haldeman County covered in chaos. But there was car parks everywhere, 
It was littered, littered to the highway. The first of two serious collisions happened right in front of this resident's Caledonia home on Highway 6. Just before 7.30 a.m., a brutal head-on crash. Uh, the two cars were completely totaled. You, you, from the front end, you wouldn't be able to tell what they were. An SUV was uh, being driven by a 40-year-old female um, traveling northbound on Highway 6. And that vehicle traveled into the southbound lane and, uh, and struck a sedan. The driver of the sedan, a 23-year-old Glenbrook man, remains in hospital with life-threatening injuries. The female driver of the SUV suffered non-life-threatening injuries. Charges are pending. But the lady got out of the car. She got put on a stretcher right away, and she was already in a neck brace. Another crash just after 6 p.m. Saturday, east of Port Dover in Nanticoke. This time, a single vehicle crash. A car rolled over onto its roof and was partially submerged in a pond. Inside the car, a father with his two children, an eight-year-old boy and five-year-old girl. Police say a family member was following behind in another vehicle, and with the help of other witnesses, they managed to get the children and the man out of the vehicle before first responders arrived. Police say the children were not injured. The 38-year-old man from Woodstock is still in hospital with life-threatening injuries. The male was, uh, was unresponsive. Um, you know, resuscitation efforts were uh, conducted at the scene. Ambulance uh, transported the male to a uh, hospital. It is unclear why the car left the roadway. During the busy long weekend, police are urging drivers to stay alert at all times. No text or phone call is worth, uh, you know, uh, your life or the lives of anyone else. OPP plan to crack down on distracted and dangerous driving during the rest of the weekend. When it comes to both crashes, police say the investigations are still ongoing. Anyone who witnessed anything is being asked to contact police. Police say that weather is not believed to be a factor in either of the crashes. Leanne? Heather Center in reporting tonight. Thanks, Heather. At this time, Brother Stephen and Sister Riel McFarlane were out visiting in Victoria, and they asked us to be their house sitters, for which we were happy to, because it would be a mini vacation for us at their house. And what was even more exciting is Kayla and I, we had the huge blessing with some help of soon moving into our first house, as the housing market is pretty tough. And yes, this was back in 2019. I realized the foolishness has only increased, very much so. So this was a very exciting time for us. The move was planned for Saturday, August 31st, 2019. One of the most exciting things from a natural's perspective, moving into your first house. We received the keys the day before from the lawyer, and now we were finally ready to move in. Neither of us slept overly well that night as we were so excited to get the move on the way. We had a U-Haul rented to move our stuff from the basement apartment we had with our brother Josh and sister Hannah Hodges' home to our new place in Caledonia. We had organized a group of people to come and help us move later in the day. This was going to be the last day we house sat at the McFarlands. So we packed all our stuff into the van that we were borrowing from dad and mom Hodges to make trips until the U-Haul was ready to be picked up, which I was planning to do in the morning. So I took our little car, a sedan, and brought all my precious things, as some would say. My bubble bag, my laptop, my school bag, my hospital ID card, a few clothes, most of my tools to fix a shelf, and some other odds and sods. 
I was planning to go to the house to fix some shelving in one of the rooms. But Kayla wasn't sure I would go or not, as we had discussed multiple options. Kayla said goodbye to me. And with Mom Redmond headed out to finish packing the van at our apartment. And then I got in my car, backed out of the driveway and headed up Highway 6 to the new house. A bright, sunny, clear day with almost nobody on the road, unlike what the news anchor said. It was a beautiful day. What a great day it was going to be. My life ended as I knew it, right there. I was clinically dead. I had no idea what had happened. I had no thought. Those who saw the accident or were coming up to the accident pulled over on the shoulder on either side. This included this young woman. Kaylin Richard, a young lady, stopped and asked about the person in the car, which was in the ditch. Indication was that there was nothing that could be done for him. Unsatisfied that no one was with the individual in the car, she walked down to the destroyed vehicle to find a young man trapped in the vehicle. She noted the moaning, the blood gushing out of his body from multiple locations, the quick breathing, and thought that he was about to die. She thought to herself, no one should die alone. And so she stayed with him, speaking to him that help was on the way. She could only touch a small part of his shoulder that was clear of shattered glass to help encourage him to slow his breathing. And soon after her comforting words, his breathing slowed. Another woman came and, and reached into the car to find a wallet on the other side of the vehicle. She opened the wallet and learned that this man's name was Jacob Hodge. The first man talked about in the news was myself. And the second man talked about who rolled his car but didn't run into anything was in the intensive care unit in the same hospital as myself. A few beds over. But he never made it. The angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him and delivereth them. Cars were still getting around and getting by, and among them was Kayla. Because of the joy of the day, she didn't look, because she knew this was going to be a day full of happiness, and did not want to see any horrible sights from the accident. Intrigued as we all would, Mom Redmond, who was with Kayla, looked, but didn't recognize any of the vehicles or people, 
and hence Kayla pressed on to drive around the mess. The highway was shut down for over nine hours. Emergency vehicles began rushing by Kayla to the site. I was driving a 2006 Volvo S60, which weighs about 3,400 pounds, which for a small sedan is fairly heavy. A Honda Civic of the same year, for example, is 700 pounds lighter, or a Corolla 900 pounds lighter. But this was no match for a Dodge Nitro, weighing in excess of 4,200 pounds. the front seat where I would have been sitting. air ambulance was called and this was the report by the paramedics that were on scene there was a head-on collision between two vehicles on highway 6 at unity road vehicles were estimated to be traveling at 80 kilometers an hour to 100 kilometers an hour one driver in each vehicle. According to police, the other vehicle driven by a female crossed into oncoming and hit the other vehicle with a male patient in his 20s. Haldemand Hamilton primary care paramedics crew arrived at scene first, followed by a Hamilton primary care paramedic ambulance. Orange and the nearest advanced care paramedic crew were dispatched for additional care. Six Nations advanced care paramedics had arrived and left scene before Orange could arrive, or the air ambulance. Triage by Hamilton unit towards male patient, who was unconscious, while female patient had superficial injuries. As per police, female patient admitted to drinking wine. 
and using cocaine. Hold them in an ambulance, transported to female, to Hamilton General Hospital. Hamilton primary care paramedic accompanied Six Nations advanced care paramedic as patient had significant potential to arrest during transport. Prior to the unit's arrival, arrival, driver B, in other words, the one, the male, myself, was trapped and was still trapped for several minutes until cut from wreckage by fire. Her injuries were non-life-threatening. Unfortunately for myself, I was in an unresponsive, comatose state, trapped inside the vehicle. The firefighter, Phil White, assessed the situation and thought that I would not survive. It took every piece of extraction equipment the fire truck was equipped with to get me out of the car. Phil, with the help of others, including Paul, a paramedic, lifted me up onto a stretcher and took me to the hospital. The air ambulance had been called. There were at least three ambulances on scene but the helicopter was too slow. So they took me by road, as the report said, to the nearest trauma hospital, the general hospital in Hamilton. I was in decorticate posturing initially, which looks like this, from the scene of the accident, a sign of a brain injury. Young people, once I was brought into the emergency department, they realized I had serious internal bleeding and I needed to get into surgery immediately. And so some of my family, who had been notified and was at the hospital, including Kayla, had to say goodbye to me again that day. The family shared in hugs, a few tears, and I was whisked off from them for immediate emergency surgery. Would I ever come back? No doubt there were doubts as to whether I would make it out alive. My spleen had ruptured. I had broken ribs, a broken sternum, bleeding all over my body. And worse yet, a catastrophic brain injury. Have you seen what internal bleeding looks like? When it's mostly cleared up, I, we have an image. This is when it's mostly cleared up. This, young people, is where prayer is a huge blessing from our Heavenly Father. In times when all seems lost, when all is completely and utterly left up to him. This man, Dr. Timothy Rice, saved my life. I'd be six feet under without him. But of course, it's not because of him. It was because of the workings of God that day through many individuals that I am still alive. And so my house 
my new home was not quite what I thought it would end up being. Neither was it the home that my wife thought it was going to be. But what a blessing that after the intensive care unit stay, my wife was able to sleep near me during a time such as this. My brain had suffered a severe injury. Five brain contusions and one contusion on my brain stem. I had what is called a diffuse axonal injury, which is when the left, or sorry, the soft part of the brain is damaged due to it crashing against the skull. The long fibers in the brain, called axons, are sheared or torn apart as the brain rapidly accelerates and decelerates inside the hard bone of the skull. Essentially, you could think of it like severe bruising, where the blood vessels break and blood pools under the skin. But this was happening on my brain. Well, there's a few stages of blood loss. 10 to 15%, when you lose that much, you feel a little bit lightheaded. The second stage, 15 to 30% of your blood, your skin will start to feel cool. You'll feel weak. Your heart will start beating fast to keep you alive, to keep the blood moving to all your vital organs. The third stage, just below 40% of your blood, you need a blood transfusion. This is when your heart will start beating very, very fast. At 40% blood loss, your smaller blood vessels will constrict or get smaller. They'll close tightly to keep the blood moving as quickly as it can. So that's when you may hear over the PA system at a hospital, code omega or code transfusion to the emergency department, indicating that someone is bleeding it. And then there's the fourth stage. Your heart, after you lose 50% or half of your blood at 2.75 liters on average, you will then be in a comatose state. Your heart will stop beating and your organs will stop receiving that vital fuel, causing them to fail. You need rapid treatment right away to survive. And at this point, they say it's unlikely you will survive. As at some point in the immediate future, you will be clinically dead. Your heart stops. You've reached cardiac arrest. That's at 50% blood loss. Now the water bottles on the front, I'm sure you've been wondering what they are. I don't drink that much water. I probably don't drink that much water in a week. But all the water bottles up here represents for my height and weight at that time all the blood in my body. This is what I had left. That is what I lost. I had lost between 60 to 70 percent of all my blood. I was resuscitated in the ambulance and on several occasions at the hospital. From that spot on the road, it takes a normal person to drive to the hospital, the regional trauma center, 
about 24 minutes. But I'm sure the ambulance did it in about half that time. Now, the Glasgow Coma Scale is used to determine a person's consciousness after a brain injury. A severe head injury is below 8, moderate 9 to 12, and mild 13 to 15. A score of 3 is the lowest or worst score you can get. In other words, you are brain dead. You are never getting out of that coma. And I was put on a 5. Because of this, when I did wake up, if I was going to wake up, there was never any guarantee that I would understand anything or know anyone. For a few days, they hadn't ruled out paralysis. I don't know how to put this nicely, young people, but I had to learn everything again, and hence needed help doing everything again which includes going to the bathroom, how to control your bladder, your bowels, how to eat, how to swallow, how to get changed, how to walk, how to shower, you name it. I had to learn it, just like a child or someone near the end of their life. It's a humbling experience. And they estimated many of these things would take months years, or that I would never recuperate. But young people, not only did I survive, but many of these things only took days, a few weeks. And so I had a ruptured spleen, a massive brain injury with six contusions, causing a DAI, diffuse axonal injury. I had a torn ACL, PCL, MCL, FCL. I didn't even know you had that many ligaments. Your popliteus tendon, in my left knee, my head was hit so hard that my body thought I needed a new bone in my knee. So it started forming a new bone, which is called heterotopic ossification, due to my brain injury. It was telling my knee that it needed to be stronger. It needed more bone, apparently. I had memory loss, bruised lungs and internal organs, fractured ribs, a broken sternum, cuts and gashes all over my body. I lost most of my blood. I had cellulitis, near to sepsis, and so on and so forth. On that first day at the hospital, I had a doctor assigned to follow me around to keep me alive whenever I needed resuscitation. That was Dr. Rice that I showed you a picture of. Feel free to come chat to me after about my knee restriction about the hole they attempted to put in my skull, causing an additional brain bleed. About the five-day induced coma that I was put in for my brain to heal, for the scars I have, the nurse that butchered multiple attempts to put an IV in my wrist, and so on, as there were many significant things that took place over this period of time. Young people, it was expected that I would be in the hospital for months. And that I would be in a wheelchair with a feeding tube. And I would be slow for the rest of my life.
But God had other plans. What happened was I left the hospital in 18 days. Returned to my clinical placement several weeks after I returned home. In June the following year, I passed my Canada-wide board certification exam. which requires a little bit of brain power. I was called before I had even passed my national exam for hiring by one of the directors of the Grand River Hospital. I'd never met them, never seen them, never talked to them, no interview, no nothing. And she just gave me the job. Another blessing from our gracious Heavenly Father. After a year of experience, I got a better job, closer to home, and most importantly, closer to the ecclesia. And this is where I was doing my clinical placement for about two weeks before the accident happened. And now I work there. I was discharged from going to physiotherapy after a year, as I had come nearly back to normal. I am running nearly every week now. God has so well blessed me with a strong and spiritual wife and a child. With my brain injury, we never expected or ever assumed that I would be able and physically capable to produce a seed. God willing, we will do our utmost to raise a godly seed. And now, young people, I'm sure that most wouldn't ever know that these events ever happened as I'm nearly back to where I was, all by God's mercies. This verse, Lamentations 3, verses 22 to 23, is now on our bedroom wall, which we hold dearly to our hearts. Thank you, fishes. It is of Yahweh's mercies that we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. When I was in the hospital, my family would take shifts so that someone was always there. Now, there was a fairly significant event that took place after I had just left the ICU. Josh, my brother, sitting in the back, was leaving his shift of duty. And his final words to me were, be strong. He paused, and apparently I looked back at him and said, and of a good courage. This was a very emotional moment, as he knew that I knew what he was referring to that I still had some inkling of spiritual thoughts and could finish the phrase he started. And so he created this board for me and brought it to me on August 31st, 2020, exactly a year later. And we've since put it up on the wall. And the day after the anniversary of the accident, a year later, Kayla and I happened to walk to the community mailbox to pick up our mail. And lo and behold, we run into Kayla. 
the young lady who had come to the side of the car to comfort me, with her sister and mother. Amazing. She lives over an hour away now, but had just come down that night to visit her family, and we happened to, to run into them on our way back from the mailbox. And we've had similar astounding circumstances with the firefighter, seeing him at physiotherapy. And Paul, the paramedic, who in the middle of the night visited us in the hospital. And Jacob Martin, who was the one who called 911. Feel free to ask me after about these fascinating events that God has orchestrated. As our brother read, James 4, verse 13, Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any married? Let him sing psalms. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the ecclesia and let them pray over him, anointing him with the oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick. And the Lord shall raise him up. And if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Prayer is a blessing that we often take for granted. And yet, it can save someone's life. I don't believe I would be here today if it weren't for the prayers offered worldwide for God's glory to be done. And sure, in this case, it was mostly physical. But on the other side of the coin, prayer can be just as impactful for things of a spiritual nature. And prayer, as we know, may not always be answered by God in the way we think it should, but it will be answered according to His will. James chapter 4, verse 15 says, For that ye ought to say, If the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. Oftentimes we forget the latter half of that verse. But young people, it's not just God willing, it's God willing. And we are still alive by God's blessing. We can do this or that. Now this woman who hit me, clearly made a mistake. And this is one of the hardest lessons I've had to learn. Forgiveness. I had to forgive, despite her potentially unchanging ways for taking my life. What a mental struggle with all the flesh, the carnal mind. All it wants to do is have immediate justice. But the spiritual mind knows that we are all sinners and we must forgive 70 times 7. When I returned to my clinical placement, they were surprised and even angry that we weren't going to sue to get as much money as we could. I explained what we believe that we shouldn't go to law one against another. And how that forgiveness is a hugely important principle that we must live by. One final lesson I'd like to share with you. Don't think there isn't anything you can do to help those who are struggling. Going through trial. I've experienced the firsthand the amazing brothers and sisters 
and young people at the Ecclesia of God at Book Road and from many parts of this earth. In sharing kind words, letters, cards, thoughts, emails, pictures, videos, clothing, phone calls, meals, financial support, flowers, food, drinks, messages via various forms, snacks, blankets, spiritual help and care. And as we said before, prayer. These are the people who care most about our well-being, most importantly, spiritually, when going through trial. And it's the first place we need to go to. And when I was starting to come around again, this was the first place I wanted to go, was back to the hall to Bible class, to meeting, for CYC, for lecture, because these are the people that will help us get to the kingdom. Young people, I was very, very close to not being the one telling you about the accident on August 31st, 2019, at 7.13 a.m. From many perspectives, I shouldn't be here. I should not be alive. But in God's eyes, things were different. And he blessed me with life, with health, and the ability to tell my own story. It is important for us to see the providence of God in our lives. A major lesson for me was not to take life for granted, live unto God, and see his hand in my life. It doesn't take a miracle for us to see his hand in our lives. It can be seen in the much smaller things of life. It doesn't have to be life-ending or altering to see his hand. Only with an open mind to his word. But now we have all seen, heard, experienced God's work in my life. So let us go forth from this point by living our lives unto God the way he would have us live. And don't underestimate the meaning of a signed card. Your name, a note of encouragement. It may be more significant than you may realize. And I want to thank you all for the cards that were sent from you. Namaste. If you want to hear more about the accident, about trial and trial in general, there are classes that were given by Brother Ted Hodge, a series at our Ecclesia that you can watch on the website or on ChristadelphianVideos.org. But Jesus beheld them and said unto them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. Even so come, Lord Jesus. And who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? God willing, in our Sunday school class tomorrow, we will see how God worked with his people to develop a great faith for his glory and honor.
for his final class, The Invisible Hand of God. And who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Well, good morning, young people and my dear brothers and sisters. This weekend, we've had the blessing and opportunity to look into the lives of the Jews and the circumstances they found themselves in, in the book of Esther. We started our journey with the focus on the kingdom and the marvelous hope we have to be a partaker in this time to come. In our first class on Friday, we built up some anticipation for the studies of Esther. We examined the vision and type of the kingdom of God in the first chapter with the great feasts in the Persian Empire. We briefly looked at where God is in the narrative. We looked at the historical king, and we tackled the issue with the king's heart being merry with wine. In our first class yesterday, we looked at Vashti's disobedience and to Mordecai in the preparation of a bride, Esther, in our first class. In our second class, we then looked at where the story really begins, with the introduction of the enemy of the Jews. We looked at the introduction to sin and to trial in life, and how all seemed lost for the Jews. And in our final class yesterday, we looked at an example of of the providence of God in the 21st century, God performing a miracle in our day and age, for all seemed lost. But with God, all things are possible. This morning, God willing, We will look at the great developments that Esther undergoes, that they work diligently to be faithful to save the Jews. And in our exhortation, we will look at the type of Mordecai. We will look at why the type of the kingdom is repeated in the beginning as well as at the end of the book of Esther. So we left off in the the narrative With the city of Shushan in a state of perplexment, letters had just been sent out by posts in the land of Persia to destroy, to kill, to cause to perish all Jews, both young and old, little children and women in one day, even upon the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month Adar, and to take a spoil of them for a prey. Haman was making this very clear, because destruction isn't enough. Hence, the triple emphasis of death to the Jews, to destroy, to kill, and to cause to perish. He wanted genocide. This caused the people in the city of Shushan to be perplexed. This word for perplexed is only used three times in the Hebrew scriptures. You want to get your pencils back out so you can mark these in. The first occurrence, we have Pharaoh realizing that the children of Israel were trapping themselves in with the Red Sea. And there was nowhere for them to go. And hence, he saw an opportunity to bring them back into the land of Egypt. 
So in Exodus 14 in verse 3, it's on the screen, it says, For Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, they are entangled or perplexed in the land. The wilderness hath shut them in. And in Joel 1 verse 18, it speaks of the cattle being perplexed because they were without a, a pasture. And the children of Israel here are represented by these cattle, by these sheep. And they were again perplexed due to the state they were in with Babylon descending on them. So we have in Joel 1 verse 18, How do the beasts groan? The herds of cattle are perplexed. Same word. Because they have no pasture. Yea, the flocks of sheep are made desolate. And so it says in verse 1 of chapter 4, where you want to keep a marker this morning. When Mordecai perceived all that was done, Mordecai rent his clothes and put on sackcloth with ashes and went out into the midst of the city and cried with a loud and bitter cry and came even before the king's gate. For none might enter into the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. Mordecai reflected the attitude of those in Shushan but far more distressed, distraught, and concerned for the Jews. And this is seen as he rent his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes. He was under extreme duress. Mordecai knew that doing this, he would have no access to what was happening, where Esther was, as he could not enter into the king's gate. He knew he was making a scene. But he knew it was because he made a stand against Haman. And now the whole nation was condemned to death because of him. He knew that it was a matter of life and death. And so he gives a loud and bitter cry as a result of what was done. This was reflected by the others in all the provinces of the Persian Empire. It says, as it says there in verse 3, that there was a great mourning. And so Esther wanted to find out what was going on after her maids and chamberlains told her of this great mourning in the empire. It seems that in verse 7, it indicates that Mordecai knew more than Esther the queen of the then known world. And that is consistent with the other happenings in the book of Esther. Consider in verse 2, with Mordecai just happening to overhear the plans of Big Thin and Teresh, as an example. He knew the exact sum of money that Haman had offered the king for the installment of this decree. And so Mordecai charges Esther through Hatak that she should go in unto the king and make supplication unto him and to make request before him for her people. The situation was dire. And it required Esther to finally reveal what Mordecai had commanded Esther to keep hidden, to keep a secret all this time. If you flip back to chapter 2 and verse 20, it says, Esther had not yet showed her kindred nor her people as Mordecai had charged her. For Esther did the commandment of Mordecai, like as when she was brought up with him. Esther was going to have to reveal her relationship to her people 
and who she really was. Young people, what is the lesson for us? Well, it's found in Mark chapter 8, if you can turn there with me, please. Mark chapter 8, where we can see what is spoken of of Christ and God and our relationship to them. Mark chapter 8, verse 38, it says this, Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Young people in this generation, in this day and age, we ought not to be ashamed of where we go, of what we do, of reading and studying and meditating upon the word of God, of praying in front of others perhaps. We ought to have the courage to do what is right, despite the aliens or unbelievers around us. And so Esther had to risk her life. And Mordecai likely knew this. But it was required in order to save the Jews, all the Jews throughout the expansive Persian Empire. Mordecai had, in a sense, already done this as he defied Haman and thus risked his life. He wasn't going to ask Esther to do anything that he hadn't already done. So what is Esther's reply? Verse 11. All the king's servants and the people of the provinces do know that whosoever, whether man or woman, shall come unto the king into the inner court, who is not called. There is one law of his to put him to death, except such to whom the king shall hold out the golden scepter that he may live. But I have not been called to come in unto the king these thirty days. Esther was saying to Mordecai that to come to the king uninvited was to risk her life. This king had absolute power over death and had all the authority in the kingdom without bias or favoritism. Esther was questioning her faith. Esther was really wondering whether or not this was real. Young people, this can be us at times in our lives where we question God. When we ask if, if he is really working in our lives, can his hand be, be seen? Can it really be seen? Well, as we saw an example yesterday, the answer is simple. Absolutely and undoubtedly. But we must all undergo a time where we have to come to this ourselves. Where we have to have the development of faith to the extent that God is real in our lives. That the angel sitting by you is indeed present. And so Esther wanted Mordecai to know the gravity of the situation. That Mordecai, you may never see me again if I do this. Esther didn't want to act as the previous queen did. 
in doing her own thing and wanting her own independence from the king. But her faith wasn't quite there yet. She was still developing. She still required encouragement. She still required an example before her. And she was soon to get it. So then Mordecai speaks words to Esther again. Verse 13. Then Mordecai commanded to Esther, Think not with thyself that thou shalt escape in the king's house more than all the Jews. Don't think, Esther, that you are free from this decree. As a Jew, we are all in this together. Despite our state, young or old, poor or rich, fair or not, or our location, it will not matter. We are all sentenced to death by Haman. You cannot get away from this. What is the lesson for us young people? We can think many a times that the problems of those in the ecclesia aren't our problems. They're separate to me. They will figure themselves out. Or I don't know them very well. Or I don't seem to get along well. Or so on and so forth. But young people, we are all in this together. Their problems are your problems. Their successes are your successes. And vice versa. As it says in the epistle to the Corinthians... And whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it. Or one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. And it says, for as the body is one, and hath many members, and all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles. Whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. Young people, to be a part of that one body. To receive that encouragement during difficult times. To receive that joy of success or honoring. It says we must be a part of the body. Which means we must... Be baptized into Christ, into that one body. This young people must be a goal that we have, that we follow after the command of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, then we see the great faith of Mordecai, verse 14. He says this, For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, Then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But thou in thy father's house shall be destroyed. And who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Esther, even if you don't do this, God will. He will by other means. God will always fulfill his will, despite what we do. But how marvelous is it that we can act in a way pleasing to him, that we can act and be a part 
of his will. That word enlargement in verse 14 in the Hebrew means a space. It is only used one other time in scripture. Are you ready to mark in this cross-reference? It's Genesis 32 and verse 16. And this speaks of Jacob going out to meet Esau, his brother. Please turn there with me. Genesis chapter 32. Genesis 32, and we'll read verse 16. It says, And he delivered them into the hand of his servants, every drove by themselves, and said unto his servants, Pass over before me, and put a space betwixt drove and drove. That word space is the same Hebrew word as enlargement. You can get the sense then how Mordecai was feeling in this situation, the sense of pressure from Haman and his devices. But he knows God will save his people and will not let them be destroyed. There would at least be a remnant. Potentially, Esther, the events we have seen with God working through you may just be for this very purpose. Let us, with this, take opportunity then to allow God's will to be outworked in each of our lives. And who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Young people, these are the words we know so well now. Mordecai is telling Esther that God may be working in your life, bringing you to a position for such a time as this in order to save his people. This is the key phrase that has and shows the great realization of the providence of God. This phrase can be understood in all of our lives. As we saw some examples yesterday. Of course, not as coming to the kingdom, as did Esther, but in whatever circumstance we may be in. And it might not just be for our sakes or for someone else that you are in the situation that you are in or the action or words that you have spoken or taken. Mordecai is saying that indeed it is so important for Esther to respond to this call, to outwork the principles of God in her life by helping to bring salvation to her people, to God's people. She was learning to understand the principle of Romans 8, verse 28. The verse and its principles we looked at this weekend already. It says there, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. Esther was absolutely called, wasn't she? God was looking to see how she would respond to this call. Mordecai had such great faith 
in the plan and purpose of God that he completely and utterly outworked and lived his life in accordance with this principle here in Romans chapter 8. Indeed, the providence of God, young people, is one of the most marvelous principles in scripture and one of the best things we have in today's day and age. I will repeat the words from our brother Robert Roberts, which we find so helpful in this matter, that there should be such a thing as providence is reasonable in view of the fact that God has purpose among the nations of the earth as revealed in prophecy of political matters. This purpose would never be realized were the endless impulses of the human action not subject to vigilant divine supervision, carefully guiding events at the turning points, end quote. This was a turning point. So what was Esther's response then? Verse 15, then Esther bade them return Mordecai this answer, go, gather together all the Jews that are present in Shushan, and fast ye for me, and neither eat nor drink three days, night or day. I also and my maidens will fast likewise, and so will I go in unto the king, which is not according to the law, and if I perish, I perish. She finally comes to realize, comes to the point where she realizes that she has to go before the king to plead her life and the lives, the lives of her people, of God's people. However, she required one thing of Mordecai and the Jews present in Shushan, and this was to fast for three days and nights. She comes to know that we are in this all together. As we saw, we must be closely knit one to another, that we mourn or rejoice together as a body, as Jews. And so Esther was resolute in her faith to go before the king. She wasn't going to go before the king with the law on her side, for with the law, salvation is not found. But she would come in with her spirit of grace and gentleness as she had aforetime. And she concludes with great words of faith. And if I perish, I perish. These are not words of fatalism. These were words of faith to let the will of God be done in their lives. In fact, did you know Esther quotes somebody of old time when she says, and if I perish, I perish? But you see, this wasn't going to be a quote from an orphaned child who had lost their parents in the captivity. This was a father of strength. This was somebody who had lost a child this was somebody who was about to lose more than one child. And Esther could see herself in this individual who the father had lost. This father who didn't realize that the child wasn't lost, but in fact came to be second in command of the kingdom. 
of the greatest kingdom in the then known world. And she could relate very well to this individual. And so she quotes his father, the patriarch, the third patriarch, Jacob. In Genesis 43 and verse 13. Please hold your hand in Esther and come flip over to Genesis 43 and verse 13 to see this. It says there in Genesis 43, verse 13, And God Almighty, sorry, verse 14, And God Almighty give you mercy before the man, Joseph, that he may send away your other brother and Benjamin. If I be bereaved of my children, by implication, I am bereaved. Note how the words of my children are indeed what is implied, but are not there in the Hebrew, as they are italicized. So it is what Jacob is, or could be bereaved of, but the words are not there in the Hebrew, the original. So it should read, And God Almighty give you mercy before the man, that he may send away your brother, and Benjamin. If I be bereaved, I am bereaved. So Jacob had to have faith that this would be left in God's hands, that his will might be outworked in their lives, and that his sons would be recovered. And so Esther would then, of course, relate to Joseph and to his father Jacob, who would have had to be alone for a time. And would have had to strengthen their faith in God for deliverance. Knowing that everything that could be done was being done. And the Father, the Almighty God of Israel, would outwork His will. We too, young people, need to come to this realization. This development in our lives. In our day and age. Because the Pharaoh of Egypt, the King of Persia, the prime ministers and presidents are on the thrones throughout this earth. But ultimately, as we saw, as we looked at in Daniel 4 verse 17, it says, this matter is by the decree of the watchers and the demand by the word of the holy ones to the intent that the living may know that the most high ruleth in the kingdom of men and giveth it to whomsoever he will, and setteth up over it the basest of men. Young people, it's the time to be faithful. It's the time to be consistent. It's the time to give God our lives to the Most High, because ultimately nothing else matters in life. So we ought to keep our vision of the kingdom age strong. Now is the time. So Mordecai was to pray and fast for three days and nights along with all the Jews in Shushan. Verse 17 of Esther chapter 4. So Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther had commanded him. 
in our exhortation, we will see how indeed it was God who delivered his people through the Lord Jesus Christ, who is marvelously typed in this book of Esther in Mordecai. To whet your appetite, as outlined by our brother H.P. Mansfield in the story of the Bible, we have Mordecai as a type of Christ. He was foster father to Esther. He showed anxious care for her welfare. He rendered such service to the king as to ensure his ultimate promotion. He refused to bow to Haman as Christ refused to bow to the flesh. He took upon himself the salvation of the people, instructing Esther how she should conduct herself in the face of danger, bringing her to the very brink of death because he knew it was the only way to life. He was figuratively brought to the cross by Haman, but delivered from it by the king and elevated through the worldwide empire as the royal representative. Haman was ultimately forced to acknowledge his glory whilst he inherited the possessions of his enemy. He established a new feast of deliverance, which was endorsed by all Israel and thus assumed priestly functions. He also ruled with the king so that he manifested the authority of a king priest. And in our exhortation, God willing, we will examine further how the Lord Jesus Christ was marvelously typed in this book of Esther in Mordecai. And I'll ask for your careful attention as I call for Brother Jacob Hodge to present his series on Esther in class number five for such a time as this. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at btf at cdvideo.org. If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen.